One of the most sordid stories in the recent history of the British establishment might well have just come to an end. Prince Andrew has reached a settlement with Virginia Dufresne, and we are going to cover this story from lots of different angles tonight. There are lots of people who have come off not looking well in these developments. To discuss them, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I am doing well. I'm very cold. This cost of living crisis has me scared to put my heating on, but I also want to look cute for you. So I'm like, I might shiver a little bit in the show. But um, but yeah, other than that, I am, I'm feeling all right. <laughs> we need to get those bills down. This is, <laughs> this is not going to be sustainable. What else are we going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about Russian money in London, and we've got a Keir Starmer video for you. Also, Prince Charles maybe has some problems of his own. Prince Andrew has reached a settlement with Virginia Dufresne. It means he will avoid a jury trial on claims that he sexually abused and raped her on three separate occasions when she was 17. Andrew has always denied the allegations, and in the settlement, he does not admit guilt. However, he does strike a different tone than in previous statements regarding both Jeffrey Epstein and Virginia Dufresne. So the statement released announcing the settlement states that Prince Andrew intends to make a substantial donation to Ms. Dufresne's charity in support of victims' rights. Prince Andrew has never intended to malign Ms. Dufresne's character, and he accepts that she has suffered both as an established victim of abuse and as a result of unfair public attacks. It is known that Jeffrey Epstein trafficked countless young girls over many years Prince Andrew regrets his association with Epstein and commends the bravery of Miss Dufresne and other survivors in standing up for themselves and others. The sum involved is understood to be around £12 million, more of which we'll discuss later. Focusing on this text, though, two parts stand out for me. First, where it says Prince Andrew never intended to malign Miss Dufresne's character and that he now, quote, commends her bravery. That's at odds with the arguments made by his lawyers at the hearing last month in New York. At that time, they suggested Dufresne may have suffered from, quote, false memories and requested to see her medical records, including notes from counselling sessions. The second part that stands out to me is where it states that Prince Andrew regrets his association with Epstein. This reads as odd because one might assume it goes without saying that a public figure would regret their association with a convicted Pedophile. Why would it need to be included in a legal settlement? Well, it needed to be because until now, Andrew had been unrepentant. Here he is speaking to Emily Maitlis in that infamous Newsnight interview. Do you regret the whole friendship with Epstein? Um, uh, now, uh, still not. And the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn... Um, either by him or because of him, were actually very useful. So he doesn't regret, or he didn't regret, associating with a convicted sex offender because it allowed him to meet people and learn things that were very useful. Dahlia, are you pleased Prince Andrew has had a change of heart on the value of his friendship with Epstein? And what do you make of this settlement more generally? It's really difficult to comment in cases like these because... There's obviously many reasons why someone in Virginia Dufresne's position would settle. You know, that I'm sure she's been on the receiving end of some pretty nasty, indirect intimidation from, let's not forget, some of the most powerful people in the world. You know, we saw some of it there in, in, in a kind of veiled threat from Andrew's lawyers that they would try and position Virginia Dufresne as some kind of co-conspirator with her abuser, uh, even though we know if he is wanting to become an advocate for victims of sex trafficking, he should Andrew should know that roping in a victim in that kind of recruiter position is a classic abuse tactic within sex trafficking. And it's often a key part of, of the trauma and, and the power play. So many survivors do settle, especially when they are up against very powerful actors, because powerful people, as we have seen, become very ugly when their, their reputation is under threat. But that doesn't mean that it's not disappointing that Andrew will not have to see his day in court, not because I necessarily think that courts are the best way to adjudicate or get healing in sexual violence cases. You know, we've seen that in this the fact that it's taken so long for this to even get this far and that that's not the case. But 
it sends this message essentially that you can buy your way out of accountability, especially even in a case that is this serious, that has caused this much harm and has implicated so many people. I worry that many powerful people who may be unnamed at the moment, who otherwise might be implicated in this case, have maybe breathed a sigh of relief today. And that's sad. And ultimately, many of the young girls and the the women who were harmed by Epstein and the infrastructure of, of sexual violence that he orchestrated, they were told that the people harming them were so powerful that they would never be held accountable. And if the allegations against Andrew are true, then that clearly continues to be the case. And that that's sad, especially when you think about the amount of momentum and public support behind Virginia Dufre. And yet it was not it couldn't surmount the kind of pressure that was being placed on her on her to settle. And as for the kind of damage control strategies that we're seeing, the, the shift in narrative, it, it's clearly down to the fact that because of the settlement, Andrew and his team are basically not on the defense anymore. So I can guarantee to you that if he hadn't settled, the knives would absolutely still be out and he would be using every, him and his team would be using every misogynistic trick in the book to smear her character. A couple of, of donations to charities is not going to change the fundamental truth here, which is that the Epstein trial showed us that there is a very small elite out there, whether or not Andrew himself is part of, I mean, he's obviously part of a very small elite, but whether or not he is guilty of any of the things that he was alleged of, we won't ever find out. But there is a very small elite there who are quite literally above the law, as in they literally fly in their private plane above the law. And an inevitable consequence of that, as we have seen, is going to be abuse of power and systemic harm. And so looking ahead of Andrew, looking ahead of the, at the particular implications this might mean for the monarchy or for Andrew himself, the question is, is has that fundamental truth changed? And I worry that because of the ability to evade his day in court, that that hasn't changed as much as we would perhaps have liked it to, given the amount of work and, and risk that the team of survivors that have brought light to, to what Epstein was doing, given the amount that they have put into this, it would be, I think it would have been a lot better if we could have had that that day in court. Lots of people will share that idea that it's a shame that Prince Andrew won't have to give a deposition. I think he was due to give one next month or would have been due to give one next month in what would have been a civil trial. So there would have been a jury who would have listened to the evidence on both sides and then would have decided if Prince Andrew was was guilty. That wouldn't have been a criminal conviction. That would have meant that he would have to pay damages to Virginia Dufresne. Apparently, as I understand it, 99% of civil cases end up in settlements out of court. So it's not unusual this has happened. I suppose Prince Andrew would also say that, look, if I wouldn't have been able to reach a settlement if there had been a criminal case against me, there hasn't been a criminal case against me, he'd say that means the, you know, the burden of evidence is on his side. Whether or not we trust that the British police are going to be, you know, treat the royal family in the same way that they treat everyone else, that's definitely up for debate, especially given everything we know about the Metropolitan Police at the moment. But it doesn't look good. You know, you've got someone who's smeared this woman for two years, saying she's a liar, the photo's fake. She is just trying to distract from the fact that she is implicated in trafficking, even though everyone accepts that she was a child when she was brought into this horrible, sordid network. Prince Andrew wasn't a child. Obviously, he denies ever having sexually abused this woman, but he wasn't a child when he entered into this social scene, which we know now was so depraved. So the idea that she bears a responsibility that he doesn't, I find pretty grotesque. Obviously, he's had to roll back on that in this in this statement, but he's going to be very pleased, I suppose, relieved um, that he has reached a settlement without having admitted any guilt. That's the thing he wanted to avoid. Although, I mean, in the court of public opinion, he is definitely not in the clear. And we're going to talk about a bunch of aspects about this. Let's talk about money. Having settled with his accuser, Prince Andrew apparently owes Virginia Giuffre £12 million. And that's not including what will be extortionate legal fees. 
The obvious question this all poses is where Andrew is going to find that sort of cash. The prince doesn't have a job and his personal wealth is thought to be no more than £10 million. The Telegraph has suggested one possible answer as to where the cash could come from. They report the Queen is to help pay for £12 million Prince Andrew settlement. And they report the Queen has already privately funded the Duke's legal fight to the tune of millions of pounds and will now partly fund the settlement in order to allow her son and the entire royal family to draw a line under the case that had threatened to overshadow her platinum jubilee year, of course. Keeping keeping the focus on what matters, which is the platinum jubilee year. And that's the real priority here. Apparently, Andrew has 30 days to pay up. So this should all be resolved reasonably quickly. Speaking on the Jeremy Vine show this morning, Gemma Forte said this. whole thing is so unpalatable. I think it's really, really important that taxpayers feel that we are not funding this, you know, yeah, we need to especially know. at the moment. Times are hard, cost of living crisis. We don't want to be letting this man off the hook with our taxpayers' money. Now, apparently it, it is all coming from it's the Queen. It's very blurred, isn't it? It's blurred. And I think there are probably areas of her financial purse that, are, that you can argue is her private money. She does, she does. So if it comes from that, fine. If it comes from that, fine. To be fair to the commentator there, she did recognise that that sort of line between public and private is difficult to to sort of assess, to ascertain. We're going to talk about those ambiguities. It's worth saying Labour have also uh, made a similar request. They've asked for guarantees that no taxpayer money will be used to fund Andrew's settlement. As I've said, this all raises the question, what does it mean to say that the Queen has private money as opposed to public wealth? Well, to break it down, some parts of what we think of as belonging to the Queen is explicitly owned by the state. That includes the Crown Estate, which manages various properties and assets and properties like Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle. But the Queen also has a private fortune. In 2015, the Sunday Times Rich List estimated her personal wealth to be some £340 million. She also gets a private income from her Duchy of Lancaster estate, which manages her wealth, investments and land. In 2020, those generated £23 million in profit. It's reported this will likely be the source of any money passed on to Andrew. So where does the extraordinary so-called private wealth managed by the Duchy of Lancaster estate come from? And can it really be considered private? Well, it's difficult to say because the details of most of the Queen's financial affairs are shrouded in secrecy. In the early 1970s, the Tory government under Edward Heath drafted legislation that would make company shareholdings more transparent. But the Queen used her power as head of state to lobby the government into changing the law. The Queen learned about the new law by using what's called Queen's Consent, a rule that means the government must inform the Queen if any new legislation might affect her. Her private solicitor then approached the government on her behalf. A civil servant named C.M. Drucker made a note of that meeting with her lawyer. So the civil servant writes, as I had recalled, he, or rather I think his clients, are quite as concerned over the risk of disclosure to directors of a company as to shareholders and the general public. He justifies this not only because of the risk of inadvertent or indiscreet leaking to other people, but more basically because disclosure to any person would be embarrassing. In response to this representation, and to save the Queen the embarrassment of financial transparency, the government changed the bill by inserting a secrecy clause, which was immediately applied to one organisation, a shell company, which held all the Queen's investments. And there's another legal loophole that indicates the Queen's riches are not just a normal private portfolio. Until 1992, the Queen paid no tax on her private profits, no income tax, no capital gains tax, and no inheritance tax. That was because, as the sovereign, she was legally exempt from all tax. And the Queen still has no obligation to pay tax. In 1992, she signed a memorandum of understanding with the government agreeing to voluntarily pay an annual amount to HMRC as compensation for her income tax exempt status. But she is still exempt from the rest of the taxes we pay. Significantly for someone whose wealth is principally hereditary, she is still exempt from inheritance tax. That meant when the Queen Mother died in 2002, her daughter inherited her £70 million estate and paid not a penny of tax on it. It gets even 
grubbier because even with all of these privileges, which don't apply to anyone else, the Queen still has a penchant for tucking her money away in secretive offshore vehicles. In 2017, the leaked Paradise Papers showed that the Queen had millions of pounds of her personal wealth in funds in the Cayman Islands and Bermuda. One of the companies that the Queen invested in via that fund was Bright House, an exploitative rent-to-own company that charged inflated prices for ordinary goods to people who couldn't afford them. So, clearly, much if not all of the Queen's money has been amassed, not by effort, but by tax-free inheritance and profits and by special, special personal financial arrangements with the government made because she is head of state. That the details of her wealth remain secret is an outrage, but it's probably necessary to keep the public calm, especially when it's used to pay off the victims of her son's paedophile friends. Dahlia, how dangerous is it for the Queen to foot Andrew's legal bills? And do you think the public are going to buy this argument that this is the Queen's private wealth, the Queen who's never had a job other than being the head of state? Her private wealth is being used, so it's nothing to do with the rest of us. Well, you're completely right to point out that those, the boundaries, when it comes to the head of state, those boundaries between public and private money is incredibly porous. I mean, we could make that argument about most rich people, to be honest, because most of them do get handouts and exemptions and subsidies from the state. But in the case of the monarchy, it is pretty exceptional. It is pretty, you can't deny how porous those, those boundaries are. But this is very shocking when you consider that the, the monarchy is an active part of our state. When you, you, when you think about the lack of transparency here, because I think that we have a tendency to, even amongst people who aren't massive fans of the monarchy, there's a tendency there to kind of say, well, this is just a symbolic relic. It's just the power is only symbolic when it comes to the monarchy. And whilst the monarchy might not have explicit political power, it has a huge amount of financial and economic power. And it is an active part of that dynamic in our state. You know, the monarchy in this country is one of the biggest landowners in the world. Like that's not a symbolic form of power. Land ownership is about as material as power can actually get. And I think that this mysticism and the opacity that it happens under the guise of tradition it means that as a, as the public, we are denied access to even the most basic forms of transparency when it comes to how this integral part of our government, of our state, operates. And, and yet we're so encouraged to, to not think of it like that. In fact, talking about it in those terms is, is almost stigmatized. And so we end up with this scenario, which, which you outlined, that vast swathes of public money or money that is at least you can't exactly say it isn't public money, even if it's not coming directly from the taxpayer. Vast amounts of that money is used in ways that we have absolutely no access to knowing or understanding. And it's also really important to point out here that it's not just the money of the British public. That's not the only public money this is. This is also the money of the global public, because let's not forget much of this, the monarchy's wealth is colonial wealth as well. And so vast amounts of money are used in ways that I don't even think the staunchest monarchists would agree is, is a good way or a, or a honorable way to use this money, particularly, and it obviously hits differently when you have, you know, the biggest cost of living crisis in decades where people are having their energy bills tripled almost overnight. People who have already been struggling financially, having a squeeze on their personal finances that is almost unbearable, that is unbearable. And yet we are seeing 12 million pounds going towards making sure that one man avoids his day in court. And that is down to the fact that the kind of narratives, the kind of woolly, quaint narratives that we talk about the monarchy, that we use to talk about the monarchy, conceals the fact that they are a, a significant financial and economic di dimension of our state. And therefore, they should be subject to public scrutiny in the way that all other parts of the state should also be subject to. I mean, they also shouldn't exist. But I suppose that's, going, that's taken us a few steps 
steps further than I agree with all of your immediate demands as a as a as a route to getting rid of them. Probably to be honest, the more transparent they are, the more likely they are to collapse because I don't think when people find out the details of all the money they have and how they accrued it, they're going to be particularly impressed. Let's move on to the media. The BBC has not showered itself in glory when covering the sexual abuses committed by Jeffrey Epstein and the alleged abuses committed by his friends. Most recently, after Ghislaine Maxwell was found guilty of sex trafficking, they invited on Alan Dershowitz as an expert commentator. They failed to point out he was also accused of abuse. Then, after Prince Andrew reached a multi-million pound settlement with his accuser, the BBC's response has once again raised eyebrows. This was the analysis of BBC royal correspondent Nicholas Witchell. So, yes, what of Andrew's future? Could there possibly be a route back to a public role? I have to say it's hard right now to see one. He's been shown uh, to have had such poor judgment, such poor choice of friends. And the brutal fact is, would anyone actually want him? Would any charities, any regiments and so on want to be associated with him after all of this, for all that there's no admission of liability? Perhaps the answer is, as he says at the end of this statement, for him, as he says, to pledge to support the fight against the evils of sex trafficking and by supporting its victims. Perhaps that offers the, the best, perhaps even the only route back for him. I watched that comment live on the six o'clock news and it just like my jaw dropped. You know, it, the immediate response from the BBC's most high profile royal correspondent to Prince Andrew settling with someone who has accused him of sexual abuse is to say, well, maybe he could find a way back to public life by becoming a campaigner for the rights of the victims of sex trafficking. Dahlia, what sex trafficking organization is going to want this guy on their board. Oh, we'll let you launder your reputation by coming and standing up and saying how bad you think sex trafficking is when you signed a multi-million pound settlement and when someone accused of it, you accused you of it, you gaslit them with very expensive lawyers. Is this is this something that's a runner? I mean, it would be an absolute insult and I don't think that any serious media outlet or charity would be complicit in that kind of rehabilitation strategy and you know, I'll leave that comment there. Obviously, if he really wanted to help the victims of sex trafficking, then it doesn't need all of this pageantry. It doesn't need all of this PR. He could have just saved the public purse 20, 12 million quid and just gone and told the court what he knew. Or maybe he could have not indulged in some of the most misogynistic, horrific narratives that prevent so many victims of sex trafficking and victims of sexual abuse from actually speaking up about what's happened to them. Maybe he couldn't have platformed and indulged in those narratives in possibly the most public sex trafficking trial of our generation. So it is shocking and entitled and horrific. But I think we have, and you know, you talk about your jaw being open when you when you saw that on the BBC, and that was the, the BBC's royal correspondent, I believe. We have a really big problem in this country, which is that a major part of our state, the, the head of state, the monarchy, has essentially an informal contract with the media that prevents journalists from reporting unfavorable or prying stories. So stories and narratives that the monarchy doesn't want out there. There is that kind of informal contract between those two, between the media and a certain part of our, of our state. That's really concerning. And obviously that's been true for a really long time, but I think it's in cases like these that we realize how strong and how damaging that informal relationship is I am not taking everything from the Harry, Meghan and Oprah interview as my theory of the British state. But I do think that that interview did give us some insight into how that relationship between the UK media and the monarchy operates. And the idea that the monarchy kind of has this ongoing bargaining relationship with the press to the point where they can say, okay, we don't want you to report on this, so we'll give you this story or we'll give you this sort of bogus narrative about the darkest skinned person that we have uh, in our ranks as a kind of compromise. That The interview really shed light on how that informal relationship operates. And I think that for people that say they live in a democracy, that's pretty incompatible with this kind of 
exceptionalism that the monarchy operates on. And it becomes really difficult to indulge in the kind of, oh, you know, these are just symbolic. It's just symbolic. It's just something that people enjoy. The monarchy is harmless. It becomes really difficult to defend that narrative when you see what is actually happening in these kind of key moments where the relationship between a key part of our state and the British media is exposed. And that's where this absurd clip that we've just seen, that's the kind of context that this is emerging from. I watched quite a lot of the coverage of this yesterday on the BBC. And Nicholas Witchell's statement that Andrew could potentially find his way back into public life by becoming a high-profile campaigner for the victims of sex abuse. I think that probably was the most ridiculous thing that was said on the network. But the coverage across the BBC, I found pretty problematic because the question of whether Andrew can return to public life was consistently given more attention than the rights of potential victims of sex trafficking. This was how the settlement was covered on Newsnight. Drawing a line under the furora will be a huge relief to him and the royal family, not least during the Queen's Platinum Jubilee when a string of scandalous allegations would have overshadowed the celebrations. Well, I'm sure that in the palace everybody will be very relieved that this um, has been settled because it avoids an unseemly case with lots more tabloid-style details such as we've already seen quite a lot of. But his involvement is likely to be damaging for years to come. It's hard to see any charity or military unit wanting to be associated with him. I think the damage has been done and it's it's very hard to see a way that Prince Andrew would return to the sort of royal duties and things that he was doing before because so many um, unpleasant details have come out over the last months and um, in a sense I don't think anybody really wants to wants him. I don't think it would be a benefit for them. So he'll have to try and find something different to do. So Prince Andrew could face a future life of near total public invisibility, never having had a chance to prove his claims of innocence. So Prince Andrew could face a future life of near total public invisibility, never having had a chance to prove his claims of innocence. He did have a chance. He could have gone to court. He could have given a deposition. He decided to settle out of court. And I was like, poor Andrew, he didn't get the chance to, to prove his innocence. He signed the deal. He, he didn't need to settle, right? He settled because he didn't want to stand up and air all his, or have, have his dirty laundry aired, aired in, in the public domain, right? Now, I don't, I don't know if he's guilty of this particular charge, but I can assume that there were things that he didn't want to talk about because he's embarrassed about them. And sort of we know from the way he has talked in that Newsnight interview, we know from his you know long-term association with Jeffrey Epstein that presumably the guy has done a bunch of things, made a bunch of decisions that most of the British public will find completely objectionable. And now we say, oh, he didn't get the chance to, to prove his innocence. And Dahlia, my question for you here is, how distasteful do you think it is? How quickly all of the coverage of this, instead of sort of, you know, because there are lots of interesting questions that you could be informing the public about, you know, settlements, what do settlements mean for the rights of potential victims? Is this justice? Instead, no one on the BBC could help within two and a half minutes going, oh, how's this going to affect Andrew? Is he going to be able to come back to public life soon? It's all like the, the obvious answer to that is no. So let's talk about something more relevant. The world's tiniest violin just scraping away in the corners of the BBC for Prince Andrew. I mean, what what struck me about this entire saga and the footage that you just aired, and it's such an obvious point that it's it's almost banal, like I'm almost embarrassed to make it because it's so obvious, which is just the sheer entitlement, like the sense that not being able to be publicly adored by your subjects and and move around freely without scrutiny and set your own narratives in the public eye, that not being able to have that right is somehow like an unfair or, or premature punishment that, that that Andrew is facing. And that that self-pity is honestly it I mean there's so many distasteful things about this story. But the self-pity is is one of the things that I just find so unbearable uh, here because it it's come through throughout the entire process. You know, it came through when he, in how he has spoken about himself in the press and how his sort of avatars have spoken about him in the press. 
And we saw it when he was asked that very simple question by Emily Maitlis. Do you regret your associations with a convicted pedophile and sex trafficker? And he thought it would be wise to say, well, the first thing that came to his mind was, well, no, because, you know, I gained a lot of connections and, and I learned a lot of things through my friendship with him. And, and, and that delusion and entitlement tells me so much because he assumes that the expansion of his mind and his networks is something that we all care about. It's something that we would all obviously recognize as something that is a priority or even equivocal to the dignity and safety of children. When he said that, I remember thinking, does he think that we are all invested in his personal intellectual enrichment? Does he think that we all seriously care about this? And the, the truth is that that's what he has been told his whole life. It's what all people who have inherited and assumed forms of power are told all their lives. And it's what we are told by our media implicitly that we should also believe as well. And obviously, I think that falls pretty flat on most people. But I think that is, you know, of all of the abhorrent details that have come out and all of the things that we have learned about the nature of the monarchy uh, in this country, that's one of the things that has really stuck with me because it's just so far away from any world I have ever occupied. It's just pretty embarrassing for him and embarrassing for us, frankly, um, for all of us uh, as people who have let this happen, for, let this continue. Uh, this fast continue for so long. I think that point actually about him him thinking that his own intellectual development is more important than than the sex trafficking, which obviously he denies he was involved in, is, is super important. History used to be written like this, you know, who would be the tutor of the prince would be sort of something of world historical importance and, and correctly training the prince to sort of be able to govern would be would be incredibly important. Obviously, it doesn't matter a jot now, but he still lives in a world where it does. People do still talk about the Queen in that way, by the way. The, the way everyone sort of says, oh, Prince Andrew, terrible guy, but the Queen, oh, the Queen's amazing, the Queen's amazing. And the BBC don't talk about the fact that she's going to be footing the bill. And she also hasn't worked today, not Jesus Christ. Let's go on to our next story. Prince Charles's charity, the Prince's Foundation, is being investigated by the Metropolitan Police over claims of involvement in a cash-for-honours scandal. The subject of the investigation was revealed in September last year by the Times. They alleged this man, Mubarak bin Mahfouz, paid tens of thousands of pounds to fixers close to Charles who promised him an OBE in return. Bin Mahfouz would go on to be awarded a CBE by Charles in a private ceremony. That's an even higher honour than the OBE, so it all worked out for him very well for that Saudi businessman. The event was kept secret and wasn't listed in the court circular, which records royal engagements. Mahfouz is a Saudi national who was trying to secure British residency through the so-called Golden Visa for Investment Scheme, which grants individuals three years residency on the condition they invest £2 million. Mahfouz wanted a CBE as he believed it would help his application. As well as paying his fixes, he donated large sums of money to restoration projects that interested Charles. After the Times published this story, Michael Fawcett, a former aide to Charles and director of the Prince's Foundation, stepped down. His position became untenable due to leaked emails that appear to implicate him in the cash for honours deal. The Times reported that in one email dated September the 1st, 2014, William Bortrick, the owner of Burke's Peerage and a paid advisor to Mahfouz, told colleagues that he, once he has the OBE, then more money will flow. The OBE, he said, was promised to Mahfouz bin Mahfouz to get the £1.5 million he paid for Dumfries House and the Castle of May. Bortrick, whose centuries-old publication records the genealogy of the British aristocracy, added, Michael Fawcett needs to keep to his side of the bargain and sort out the OBE immediately, then assist with citizenship. The Met, who've now launched an investigation into this, haven't yet revealed who is under investigation at the Prince's Foundation. Dahlia, I mean, this Prince's well, former private secretary, head of his foundations, being said about him that he needs to keep to his side of the bargain and sort out an OBE for £1.5 million. Like, how, how sordid is all of this? We've spoken a lot today about the relationship between the media and the monarchy 
And obviously the police and the monarchy, we haven't spoken about that as much, but the implication there has been that it's just as cozy, if not more. And I think it's interesting that we're seeing sort of more scrutiny of actually what power, what forms of power the monarchy occupy in our society and the kinds of immunity and enrichment that they have, which kind of goes against what we are typically told about the monarchy, which is that the monarchy is just this kind of relic from the past that brings in a lot of tourists, but doesn't really shape British life in any kind of meaningful political or financial way. It's interesting that we've seen kind of more scrutiny of that in the past week than we have in a really long time. I don't think that that's necessarily indicating a massive shift in power, but I think it's important in these moments that we normalize these kinds of conversations and these kinds of ways of looking at at the monarchy, because typically pretty much saying anything bad about the monarchy or saying anything critical about the monarchy is, is stigmatized so heavily. So this is a really important break, I guess, from, from that. But of course, this is also such a central part. You know, what we have seen unfold in this particular case is a central part of, of the puzzle when it comes to understanding to the forms of power that the British monarchy holds, not just within Britain, but, but globally. You know, there's obviously the, the power of land ownership, the power of financial enrichment, the protection by the government, the fact that basically there are these massive programs of wealth distribution from the global public to this tiny, tiny little family that exists for no reason by accident other than accident of birth. But that kind of power makes and is also made by these forms of symbolic power, the ability of the royal family to give cover to different kinds of relationships that perhaps would rather be clandestine or different kinds of of figures that come into their orbit. And this is again where the lack of transparency that comes not only from institutionalized government policy, such as you know, the ability to keep movements of money and movements of finances secret for no other reason than it would break the spell of the power that the monarchy holds, but also the kinds of informal contracts and the informal relationships between media and uh, monarchy and even police and monarchy that also conceal a key part of how power functions in this country. And it's about time that we broke the, the kind of spell of not being able to draw those connections and not being able to, to talk about that publicly. Having this be off limits and having this incredible amount of stigma attached to, to engaging with this is incredibly damaging to, to our democratic life, to our democratic process. Uh, so I think it's really, it's a, it's a good step. I don't think it's, implies a significant shift in power relations in Britain, but it might be just a teeny tiny step in in a better direction. Because as you said, with more transparency, will probably come a lot more disillusionment with the way that the monarchy operates. And in fact, the existence of a monarchy at all. The thing that always surprises me with stories like this, you know, cash for honours or whatever, um, cash for peerages, is how cheap the British establishment is. Like for for a hundred for one point five million quid, which for this dude is clearly peanuts, right? You can get an OBE or CBE. You know, these these are supposed to be things that you you work for a lifetime to achieve something as as you know meaningful and significant as a CBE. You just give one point five million pounds to a charity, and then I mean, obviously we can't confirm this, but from those emails, it seems as as though there was a quid pro quo, and then suddenly you're essentially part of the British establishment. It's quite cheap to get in there. I suppose, I suppose they know he had more money yeah. behind that. Not everyone can afford it, of course. But if you are part of that scene and you want to join the British establishment, yes, yeah, it's not that much money. It's not that much cash. Yeah, and I think it's important to ask, you know, why would an individual like this consider that to be such an investment? Because having that marker, I mean, I never really understood why anyone cares about these kinds of titles or whatever, but clearly that is like a multiplier of power and wealth. No one in this world makes an investment that they don't believe will have a significant return on that investment. And so how is that power being used? We don't even know about how that power is being used. And that's really significant when it comes to assessing 
how democracy works in this country. And the monarchy is a key part of that conversation as much as we are told and essentially gaslit to, to be made to believe that it's not. Next story. The Labour Party is currently in a dispute with one of its biggest funders, Unite the Union. Unite represent bin collectors in Coventry who are on strike for higher wages. Their employer, a Labour council, have in response to the strike hired a private bin collection firm to collect the town's rubbish, essentially bringing in scab labour. Now, Sharon Graham, Unite's General Secretary, has said unless the council changes its approach, her union may withhold all funding from the National Labour Party. Starmer was in nearby Erdington today and spoke to BBC Radio Coventry. In relation to the strike, it's obviously industrial action. And what I want to see is what pretty well everybody wants to see, which is an end to the dispute. That's only going to happen if both sides are talking. They are talking at the moment. And I hope that resolves the issue because, you know, that's the best thing in relation to this industrial dispute and most industrial disputes. On the funding, I don't think a, an industrial dispute in Coventry should influence relations between the Labour Party and its trade unions, its affiliated trade unions. So um, it's very important I make that clear as well. I don't think an industrial dispute in Coventry should influence the relationship between Labour and the unions. This is a place, by the way, which, you know, Labour shouldn't take for granted. Lots of those seats were very close at the last general election. He's speaking to Radio Coventry. The point he was trying to make, there was a different way to make it than scoffing at anyone thinking that a dispute in Coventry could have any national significance. Would, would you be pissed off if, if you were from Coventry listening to that, Dahlia? God, that is, I didn't realise he was speaking to Radio Coventry, actually. That is just so awful. <laughs> just awful. Oh my God, I was mortified. But the disdain there, the disdain dripping from his lips, it's not just for the people of Coventry, for people outside of, of his Westminster bubble. It's also for workers. It's also, you know, for this idea that oh, a couple of workers in Coventry not going to decide how I, how I run my party. Well, maybe if they did decide how you ran your party, maybe your party would be doing a little bit better. But I think also this is a vindication in many ways uh, for Sharon Graham. You know, many people saw a lot of her campaign for, for Unite Secretary, General Secretary, was built on this idea of you know, I'm interested in organizing workplaces. I'm not interested in just getting involved in Labour Party politics for the sake of it. And a lot of her logic behind that was this idea of, look, the Labour Party is taking us, taking our membership, taking our workers for granted. And it is important that we don't just see exercises of power as backroom deals, as comms, as sort of talking to people behind closed doors, but actually doing a public exercise of power to say, you cannot take these constituencies for granted. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations over the past, probably since 2019, even before then, talking about, you know, who does Labour have to win over in order to not see a repeat of the 2019 election? Those are really valid and important questions, but it's really important in those conversations to not lose sight of who you have always needed to win. And workers, trade unionists, organized labor, that is essential to labor winning any election in the future. And so for me, that disdain for organized labor, that inability to come down squarely on the side of labor even though you are literally the leader of the Labour Party, is that is another dimension here, as well as the obvious geographical element, which is that people rightly have felt that the Labour Party, that political parties in general, have seen Westminster as the main place where politics happens. And the rest of the country is kind of a peripheral uh, hinterland that you venture into for a few months before each uh, each election. Well, that mentality is not going to win anymore because I think people are very attuned and very aware that they deserve better than that. So terrible media performance, but it's not just a terrible media performance. It's indicative of a deeper ideological problem that is still undergirding the Labour Party. 
disastrous interview. So they're supposed to be professionalizing politics. The professionals are in the room and then they, you scoff when you're talking about a town that lots of you voters live in. Final story. British politicians have been talking tough on Russia. And the major weapon our leaders have been talking up as a means to discourage a potential Russian incursion in Ukraine are sanctions. We have a hard-hitting uh, package of sanctions ready to go. Uh, what I think it would be fair to say is we want to see our European friends uh, ready to uh, deploy that package as soon as there should be any incursion at all uh, by Russia into Ukraine. What I'll be announcing later this week is improved legislation on sanctions so we can target more Russian interests that are of direct relevance to the Kremlin because we absolutely need to stop this happening. That is our number one priority. Currently, the economic sanctions are fairly narrowly drawn. So we could only target companies with a direct involvement in destabilizing Ukraine. What we are looking to do is widen that so any company of interest to the Kremlin and the regime in Russia would be able to be targeted. So there will be nowhere to hide for Putin's oligarchs, for Russian companies involved in propping up the Russian state. That's what we are looking at doing this week. We've been very clear. We will bring in more sanctions. That's one of the repercussions there will be. Yeah, but my question is, why are we waiting? We we already have some sanctions against Russia already. We've already taken the power in the last week or so with the uh, uh, statutory instrument in Parliament to allow the UK government to put more sanctions in place. So the position is that the UK has prepared a package of hard-hitting sanctions that could be deployed the moment Russia sets foot in Ukraine, or at least that's what we're being asked to believe. However, the rest of the world has its doubts that the UK will ever impose any real economic consequences on Russia's ruling class. Why? Because we are too heavily involved in and economically reliant on laundering Russian money. This was a recent headline in The Times. Ukraine crisis, US sounds alarm over Russian dirty money in London. The article quotes a US diplomatic source as saying, the fear is that Russian money is so entrenched in London now that the opportunity to use it as leverage against Putin could be lost. Biden is talking about sanctioning Putin himself, but that can only be symbolic. Putin doesn't hold his money abroad. It is all in the kleptocrat's name and a hell kleptocrats' names, and a hell of a lot of it is sitting in houses in Knightsbridge and Belgravia, right under your government's noses. Liz Truss was asked whether any proposed sanctions would include property seizures. Would that include, for example, the capacity to seize property, which may not be very far from where we're sitting here, which is worth hundreds of millions of pounds, in the hands of uh, Putin's oligarch pals who've put their money into London property? Nothing is off the table, and we're not going to go into details of exactly who and how we would target the sanctions. What the legislation enables us to do is hit a much wider variety of targets, so there can be nobody who thinks that they will be immune to those sanctions. I don't want to seem obsessed with um, the property, other people's property, but you know we've said a lot of this before. Uh, after the Salisbury poisoning, for example, and so on. Um, And it seems that we haven't really done very much to hurt the people who have got all those big houses in in Belgravia or who have large deposits in London banks. Is the problem here that, in truth, you might say you want to do this, but the cost of it to this country is dramatic? For every uh, Russian oligarch whose accounts are frozen... Uh, that means that somebody isn't going to get investment from that Russian money in this country, for example, to support the levelling up uh, agenda. Is that the problem, that it's going to cost us to do this? We have seized over a billion pounds worth of assets, and we have put sanctions in place on specific individuals. But what I'm saying, Trevor, is we want to do more, is we want to do more, And that is why we are legislating to broaden our sanctions. And fundamentally, the most important thing is defending freedom and democracy. And that is more important than immediate financial issues. And that is true not just for the United Kingdom, but also for our friends in Germany who are now taking a much tougher line on Nord Stream 2. We cannot 
favour short-term economic interests over the long-term survival of freedom and democracy in Europe. A lesson in complete evasion there when it came to the concrete issues she was being asked about. In the summer of, of 2020, the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament released a report on the security risks that Russia represents to the UK. You might remember this as the so-called Russia report that Boris Johnson's government refused to publish before the 2019 elections. The committee found that, in brief, Russian influence in the UK is the new normal. And there are a lot of Russians with very close links to Putin who are well integrated into the UK business and social scene and accepted because of their wealth. This level of integration in London grad in particular means that any measures now being taken by the government are not preventative, but rather constitute damage limitation. That report is clear that as well as property holdings and ties to businesses, Russian millionaires and billionaires have direct access to parliamentarians and that means political influence. The committee found that several members of the Russian elite who are closely linked to Putin are identified as being involved with charitable and or political organisations in the UK, having donated to political parties with public profile, which positions them to assist Russian influence operations. It is notable that a number of members of the House of Lords have business interests linked to Russia or work directly for major Russian companies linked to the Russian state. These relationships should be carefully scrutinised, given the potential for the Russian state to exploit them. Ironically, just days after this report was released, Boris Johnson awarded a life peerage to this man. His name is Evgeny Lebedev, now Baron Lebedev. He sits in the House of Lords, giving him a direct hand in the creation of British law. Lebedev just happens to be the son of this guy. Alexander Lebedev. He is a Russian oligarch and former KGB agent in 2008. Forbes estimated his fortune at $3.1 billion. Alexander and Evgeny own the Independent and Evening Standard newspapers, and many in Parliament and the civil service thought the peerage was a payback for the Evening Standard's pro-Johnson position. The connection between the Tories and Russian billionaires, of course, goes way beyond the Lebedevs. The party has close ties to multiple members of the Russian super-rich. One of those is Alexander Tomerko, who held positions in the Russian Ministry of Defence and who has donated more than £1.3 million to the Conservative Party. The Times reported that Electoral Commission records show that six members of the Cabinet and eight junior ministers received tens of thousands of pounds from individuals or businesses with links to Russia. The donations were made either to them or their constituency parties. There's no suggestion that any of these donations were improper and they were all legally declared, but it lends, lends credence to the American position that both the UK and the Tory party specifically are too dependent on Russian wealth to really carry out effective sanctions against the country. And we are talking here about big money. Transparency International has identified £5 billion worth of London property brought with suspicious wealth. At least £1 billion of that is linked to Russia. Major British banks have also been found to have aided in Russian money laundering. In 2017, it was revealed that British high street banks had processed almost $740 million from a Russian money laundering operations with links to the Russian government and the KGB. But Britain has never been serious about stopping illicit Russian wealth from entering the country, either through property or the banking system. Even after Russian agents carried out the Salisbury poisoning, the Conservative government refused to crack down on Russian money laundering. Vladimir Ashokov, a Russian dissident, explains why. Of course, there is the lobby of enablers of kleptocrats, these lawyers, property state agents, um, bankers that service this corrupt flow. Even in a democratic political system like Britain's, there are special interests that would like to um, skew the government policy in certain direction. And one of such influences is, of course, that Britain would turn blind eye to corrupt money. There it is. The Tories turn a blind eye to corrupt money. Why? Because they benefit from it. Now, I should be clear that the intended sort of importance of what we've talked about in this section isn't because I think our government isn't being tough enough on rough Russia vis-a-vis -vis what's going on in Ukraine. As we've talked about on previous shows, I think there is a lot of dishonest, misguided attempts to demonize Russia to the extent of saying, we need to be as tough as we possibly can because they're going to invade and annex Ukraine. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. Keir Starmer said yesterday we should be putting sanctions on Russia now. I think 
giving them nothing to lose would be a silly decision if what you're trying to do is is deter them from entering Ukraine. You want to have what's called off-ramps. That's what's called in like d- diplomatic terms. You need to give them a way out of this situation to reduce the tension. If you put sanctions on them now, th- that won't do that. But the broader importance here, I think, is is both that it shows the hypocrisy of the government when they talk about being tough on Russia. But also, if you look at what's going on here, this isn't just like trade with Russia. This isn't me saying, oh, we, if we were serious about Russia, we wouldn't do all of this legitimate trade with them. No, this money, which is going into London and the UK, is essentially being stolen from the Russian people, right? So this is our government, not just supporting Russia in the abstract, but they are propping up a system whereby Russian elites are stealing money from their own people, all because it profits financial interests in the city of London. And what's more, a barrier to them clamping down on that is not only that, as we know, the Conservatives and whoever is in government generally tends to be quite close to financial interests, but also they get direct money from people who are in these Russian elite circles to finance their own political parties. So we have a situation where not only is the government being incredibly hypocritical when it says we're tough on Russia, because actually they're very kind to many Russian oligarchs, but also even abstracted from what's going on in Ukraine. We are supporting precisely those parts of the Russian establishment, the Russian elite, which are most toxic, the ones who are stealing money from their people. Dahlia, this issue of sort of like the government and Russian money, sort of it comes up a lot. Sometimes I find it a little bit conspiratorial, you know, like Russia are a blame for Brexit, etc. But this issue of, of essentially sort of corrupt wealth, I do think this is really important. What I think this story has, has been missing and what this, this sort of uh, focusing in on, on the movement of wealth uh, really highlights is that fundamentally imperialists of all stripes are more on the same side as each, of each other as we as we think and and as you sort of mentioned that's not to say that there's some kind of conspiracy that they they gather in a shady room and sort of make plans about how they're going to sort of do war games in public but like illicit financial deals in private it's more that the political economic interests of imperialists often can at some point find common ground. And I think that a lot of the the rhetoric that we, we've seen over the past few weeks has been much more about sort of resolving internal political crises uh, in the US, the UK and Germany than about serious concerns for threats to freedom and democracy. Because as you mentioned, the, the housing of vast amounts of wealth from a very tiny group of people in the world is very antithetical to principles of freedom and democracy. And the people that really suffer from that are, of course, the everyday people who have their homes and their communities and their land used as sort of battlegrounds in broader geopolitical struggles. Or even, you know, if we're talking about the London housing market and the role of financial wealth and financial capital of global financial capital in that in in the housing market in London is the people who are made homeless by a housing system that is set up to house transnational wealth rather than actually house people and the idea you know Liz Trust saying there that we can't sacrifice freedom and democracy for short term financial gain i would agree with that but that's not what the british state believes you know this is the same state that has privileged the investment portfolios of the world's wealthiest people above the ability to house working class people. We have a housing market that exists to line the pockets of the rich, whilst one in 52 people in London don't have a home. And it might seem strange to kind of go from a story about aggression, about you know the Ukraine, to talking about the London housing market. But when you look at it through the lens of imperial blocks fighting, like sort of doing these kind of public war games, but fundamentally having quite shared financial interests, it becomes clear that actually there is a connection there. And that's where I think this piece of the puzzle, this sort of part, this thing about Russian Russian, uh, financial interests and the way that the British state protects those interests 
is because those interests aren't as far apart or oppositional as perhaps these public war games would would sort of suggest that they are. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, yes, these elites aren't as opposed to each other as they often try and make out publicly. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. We'll be back at 7pm on Friday with Aaron Bastani. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.